it's a non-zero-sum game. We're saying, hey, big company in Silicon Valley, the talent you need is in Michigan or in Ohio or in Texas. I know it's you can afford to move people to California, but is that good for, for them, for the rest of your workers there, the, the, the traffic, the cost of housing, all this stuff? And so we were helping companies see, wait, the talent I'm looking for is actually in Pittsburgh. And then how do you get there? And so that was kind of happening. It's just been very, very accelerated. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today, we have my good friend, Patrick McKenna, investor, entrepreneur, thought leader. And uh, Patrick, you have your hands in quite a lot of things. So fill us in on everything that you're working on right now. Well, it's great to be with you today. I love everything you're doing and kind of promoting so many different trends and educating people on what's going on in this market. Um, From my perspective, I I really work on three things. Um, I'm, an in, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, my, my company is called Facet Wealth. I'm the executive chairman co-founder. And what we do there, it's a fintech company focused on bringing uh, financial planning, financial advice to the mass market. And we're leveraging technology to lower the cost and increase access. Also, as an investor, I've come back capital. And this is kind of leveraging on this bigger, bigger theme uh, that there's talent everywhere. It's undercapitalized. It's under-networked. And Comeback Capital is a scout fund that focuses on finding early stage, like pre-seed companies at the entrepreneur level to have some signal and get them 100, 200,000, maybe $300,000 of capital so they can keep moving on an idea, but also focused on doing it in places that are off the coast, places that have less access to capital and help those teams connect with the financial resources they need when they get to a point where they can raise more institutional seed or series A. And then uh, on the philanthropy side, I started an organization called One America Works. And this is, again, it's a, it's a 501c3, but the idea here is how do we build network connectivity between emerging tech hub cities, the entrepreneurs and talent that live in those places with the bigger innovation economy, mostly based in Silicon Valley. And so we've done a lot of really interesting things with that platform that I'd love to talk to you about today. Yeah, well, it, it was really funny, right? Because Anders introduced us right when I first moved here to Austin and we sat down for lunch and your thesis on talent is everywhere far predated this pandemic where a lot of people woke up and realized, oh my goodness, there's so much untapped talent that is out there and we can build more diverse teams, more interesting teams, uh, more cost-effective teams. And so I'm curious where this whole thought had originated from uh, during your career. So it really goes all the way back to 2003. So, um, the year I graduated college. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, in 2003, uh, I partnered up with a couple engineers and other entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and we built a company called LiveOps. In LiveOps, the idea was have technology that enables people to work from home and do customer service. And so, we started it off with you know four or five of us in you know one room office on University Avenue in Palo Alto, just outside the gates of Stanford. Very sexy, expensive real estate, yes, by the way. <laughs> above the Long's Drugs, which I don't think it's the Long's Drugs anymore, but yes, we're right in the heart of it. And over a five-year period, we went from five of us in this, this office to 20,000 people. And our insight was technology creating access to a quality workforce, that's the U.S. workforce, but working from home. So if you had a computer and an internet connection, then you can work in customer service. And that was a very novel idea in 2003. And two things really fundamental that I learned in that experience is that one, that technology actually can increase the productivity of individual workers. So it's not always eliminating workers, right? So that productivity lift made our workforce competitive with offshore. At the time, there was this big sucking sound. Remember back in the early aughts, everything was going to India, the Philippines. And there was a lot of work that does really well there. But there's also a lot of work that with a U.S. worker, with the right tools, can actually be done better here in the US. So number one is technology as a productivity tool. The other was this hidden talent that is all across this country that not everybody can move to Silicon Valley or to New York or to Boston, these hubs. And through our 
business model of actually engaging people working from home, we were able to access this talent. And what I learned over that five years was, wow, there are amazing people everywhere. And if they're given a chance and given the tools, they can perform at the highest quality. And so those two big lessons led to many of these, these insights that I've been leveraging in my career since. And these 20,000 people, were they remote or were they in hubs that, you know, for the thesis of One America Works? Because One America Works was originated on building teams in secondary and tertiary markets to the coast. So it was, we were hybrid before hybrid was cool, right? Okay. And so we had 700 people in Palo Alto. Um, we had a you know, big office in, on Hillview, right off the other side of campus, on the, on the uh, south side of Stanford campus. And we had about 15,000 work-at-home people who were absolutely work-at-home. But then we had an office in Phoenix and an office in Dayton, Ohio. And so the call center BPO workers worked from home exclusively. But then we had the hubs where the talent that we were looking for, who actually understood how to manage BPO, how to do reach, do the re all the things that are required to operate a world-class BPO, they weren't in Silicon Valley. They were actually in Dayton and in Phoenix. And so we had offices, kind of the One America Works initial thing was like, hey, let's open offices in cities that have the talent that we're looking for. But then we also had the work-at-home people who wanted flexible schedules, who were working around home or rural or family, things that gave them some limitations for them to be able to be more traditional workers, but they had the skills, talent, and motivation to perform at a high level. So we were very much a hybrid model, which looks a lot like what I think we're going to see post-pandemic. Yep. And how'd you find this talent back then? I mean, 2003, obviously things have changed a lot in the almost 20 years. So there are 60... Two sixty-three percent of our workers were women with kids at home. And so there were a lot of blog sites out there, you know, work from home, work at home moms, all these things. And there were actually a lot of websites that were doing things that weren't necessarily great businesses, but they built big communities and also the virality. So this turns out to be a really good job. The proof is here. So we hired about 50 people a week into the program. We had 2,000 people apply a week. It was just a really high quality job that paid well, that had flexibility. And the demographic of our worker at the call center rep was this some college, more kind of sub mid-rural, not totally rural, mid-rural with kids who needed the flexibility. Yep. And so the But also wanted supplemental income. Exactly. So the extra few hundred dollars a week that she can earn around her schedule was very meaningful in the business. This is so obvious now, but you know, when people go to the regular job in the office, you don't get paid to commute, right? The <laughs> no. hour on the front, the hour in the back, you don't get paid for that. The gas, it costs, you know, what, a couple gallons of gas. When like, the tax laws actually say you can't expense that expense. Even. And so what also there was an intuition for the people who were working in this first model was that net for hours worked, they were actually getting paid a lot more work. So it was not only flexibility was the number one reason, but actually net dollars were higher than actually taking a job that you would drive to. It's very interesting. Well, and so I've said it multiple times, this was 2003. It took till 2020 for most companies. Yes, there are a lot of companies that have been remote first, but I would say that was a smaller percentage to the entrepreneurs and leaders with some of the smartest people on the planet not following this until a year plus ago. Why do you think that is? everything has changed. And everything was going to change, but it just changed a lot faster. <laughs> so all the trends that have happened in the last year were setting up. And many of us who were building businesses that were distributed remote, tapping into this talent, thought it would take 10 years. But the reason why it was going to take you 10 years was for companies to build new habits, right? So I had already been operating my company Facet. We started in Baltimore, but we were always going to be at least 70% remote. So we built it remote first and we were accessing amazing talent, literally the highest level of engineering talent and financial planner talent in a work, or work at home or a remote hybrid business. But there was still a lot of resistance from investors to invest in companies that would be remote first or not in Silicon Valley. And the other is from the companies that were sitting in Silicon Valley, forcing everybody to move to Mountain View, come into the office. And there's a subset of people who are willing to do that the companies themselves knew that they had a talent problem. They weren't getting all the talent they needed. They were getting the best great talent, but not all the talent they needed. 
but there were some new habits they needed to form. And so what 2020, what the pandemic really forced is we went from about 7% work from home to- 100. Basically 100. <laughs> I mean, I think- the, I mean, in technology. In technology, okay, yeah. Yes, I mean, if you could, it was 100. Yes. Everybody, and, and, and literally it was like 55, 56, maybe almost a 60% of workers were working from home from seven. Now, is it going to stay that high? No. But what happened was two big things. One, the question of, oh, is the talent out there? Answered. The talent's out there because people were engaging with it. Does productivity drop? No. For most things, no. Up. actually went up. So yep. the management mentality that was forcing everybody to come into the office, particularly in, say, Mountain Views in San Francisco, all of those, those barriers, all those old habits, they broke. It turns out the talent is everywhere, and it turns out you can manage them effectively. So that's the shift in the labor market that's not going back. And, and I thought that that would take about 10 years because you saw it, it was just too expensive for everybody to move to California. It was making quality of life bad for everybody. Yeah. And this was one of the premises of One America Works. It's a non-zero-sum game. We are saying, hey, big company in Silicon Valley, the talent you need is in Michigan or in Ohio or in Texas. I know it's you can afford to move people to California, but is that good for, for them, for the rest of your workers there, the, the traffic, the cost of housing, all this stuff? And so we were helping companies see, wait, the talent I'm looking for is actually in Pittsburgh. And then how do you get there? And so that was kind of happening. It's just been very, very accelerated. So there's a few things that I have some thoughts and strong opinions on. So the two things are the companies that are mandating people to go back to the office. And the second one is the cost of living adjustments. Which one do you want to start with? <laughs> Let's start with the first one because I find the power dynamic between company and worker, the shift is so dramatic and still underreported. It's crazy. And the data that we have found through our surveys is even more interesting running a recruiting company, right? And so I have a business where I'm worried about retaining my talent, you know, and building my team while helping companies think about how they're going to do it in the future. And, you know, the, the companies that need to hire SDRs in person in San Francisco are losing. Now, we don't work with Google and Facebook and Autodesk and Salesforce. So, you know, we work with more growth stage technology companies. And the ones that are more nimble are realizing quickly and they're able to change their strategies. And when I look at the costs associated that the companies have invested in these offices, what I'm thinking is, I think that's really what's driving the decision because it's a terrible decision to force people to come back into the office full time because they're going to go work for one of these startups where that offers more flexibility, whether it's a hybrid model where you can meet with people in person or just work from home. And the companies that are forcing the function, you know, I think are going to lose. 100%. Like the people who have already made the shift and now their quality of life is, what were the limitations for people to actually work remote before? Number one was really, A, whether is it allowed or not? Number two was, would you have the career progression? Right, like that was the thing, that was a big question. And then the other is, what happens if you need to find another job? <laughs> right, like it just happens. Like say you're doing this remote work and then the company that you're working with has a change and you find yourself unemployed. If you're in San Francisco, you can walk across the street and get a job very easily. But if you're outside, it's a little harder in the past. That risk is completely undermined. Like if you're a remote worker with a skill stack, which is a lot of things these days, you can get any job you want and do it remote. So that's that power dynamic shift that I see is that workers are now being like, mm, I don't have to be in San Francisco to have a great career advance and also have lots of options. And so this, there's two companies I want to, because they're well-known companies that will, I think, define the power dynamic difference. Salesforce is the most committed company to San Francisco in the face of the planet. <laughs> they, built, they built that huge that, tower. The huge tower. It's got their name on it. Yeah. They also had like 300,000 feet addition to that, like that was in other places. A couple months ago, they kind of subtly gave up those other leases. They gave up some offices. They were making some announcements and they didn't force people to come back to San Francisco. And at first you think, oh, that's because they're being good stewards of their labor. No, their labor wasn't coming back. The workers were telling them, if Mark Benioff could force everybody back to San Francisco to be in his big tower, he would have done it. But he doesn't have the power to do that. Salesforce is an interesting one because they actually said that they didn't make a commitment to it. And they gave up a lot of the, the space that they had 
leases on. So they've given up a lot of the space because they're not anticipating a lot of take rate. And it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be a lot of people working for Salesforce in San Francisco. But if you look at the what the plan was and what the new reality is, just look at the square footage they're going to have under contract in San Francisco. It will tell the story. The other is Google. Three months ago, Google said, everybody's coming back. Well, guess what? About a month ago, they said, oh, maybe it's going to be more hybrid. <laughs> and I can tell you 100% that when they said everybody's coming back, they got a lot of pushback from their workers who are like, hmm, I have a lot of options these days. So even Google, they said, hey, everybody's coming back. And it turns out that they've now been more nuanced on how, where, when, how. So I think it's very obvious that companies are getting pushback and it's because workers have options. They do have options. And especially if you work at one of those companies and you come from the best training ever and you know this large company is saying, oh, hey, come back. And I'm curious about with LiveOps and Facet and these remote cultures that you had built before, did you invest in getting, I mean, 20,000 people. I don't think there's, I mean, maybe getting everyone together, but did people that were working from home ever have in-person interaction or was it all remote? Again, it's a bit hybrid. So yep. in the live ops example, there'd be regional get together where people could come in and opt in to meet management, to meet, to, to have social events. And that, that was all the way back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That was more socializing in kind of cultural building the way it's different now. So Facet is, I think, a really great example of a lot of lessons learned. So before the pandemic, we still had an office in Baltimore. We had about 40 people in that office and we had about 80 people who were remote. Two months into the pandemic, our lease was up. And Bye. so we gave up the lease <laughs> and we're not going back. So now, and we've actually doubled the number of people in the company. So we have about 280 people now at Facet. More than half the people have been hired during the pandemic. Yeah and have never met anybody before, right? And yeah. so it's all been through Zoom and stuff like that. We've done some surveys of, of workers and we've talked through with managers and stuff like that. Um, our approach that we feel really good about is we're going to have a series of function level onsite retreats, but they're not gonna be culture building social events. They're actually gonna be like hackathon, group work, come together, tackle a project and yeah. do something because that's what people want to do. They want to come together and actually get something done. And then while you're getting something done, you get to actually get to know people, do some socializing and stuff like that. But what people really want is actually to get together and actually do something together, build something, strategize, do things. And um, that's how we're moving those budgeted dollars from office space to actually supporting a more regional and functional approach to bringing people together for like three to five days Yep. And then people still work from home. Super interesting. You know, we're bringing our company together here to Austin, Lost Pines. We have, you know, flying everyone there. And I thought about it differently. And maybe I'm curious what your advice is and you can give it to me on this podcast. Our demographic is just mostly salespeople and recruiters. And we have a few operations people. So, and I was thinking, okay, most of these people haven't met before. So let's actually do team building and do, you know, an amazing race, uh, scavenger hunt, ropes course, et cetera. So people can work together as teams, get to know each other. But I'm curious because it seems like you're approaching that a completely different way. Our understanding talking to people, particularly talking to managers about what's missing with being distributed is actually getting people's brains together and collaborating and bumping ideas off it. And in the, in the process of doing that, you're going to get to know each other more personally. So the derivative will be the social cohesion, which you're talking about, but the output's going to be something very specific. And that, I think, is going to give the experience more meaning. And also, honestly, there is value. There is value in bumping ideas off of each other in person. And that's the thing it's really hard to do on Zoom. So we're trying, we're going we're gonna to attempt to try to get that creative flow going in person, expecting that the social cohesion, cultural building will be derivative of that. Right. But what we're, we think we're missing is that idea that comes when you're looking somebody in the eye, you're on a whiteboard yep. doing something, that piece that's hard to do in Zoom or in Slack. We'd like to capture as much of that as possible. Well, and I think it's really good because transparency is key. Everybody wants to know what's going well, what's not going well, and, and really have insight into the company that they're working for. 
So I think to your point, what we can do is here are all the challenges that we're facing right now, right? Too much demand, clients, whatever it is, make a whole list, right? And divide and conquer and brainstorm solutions to some of these problems. And then I think people will have true buy-in. So thank you for (laughs) helping me plan my summit here on the podcast. I think that I like the way you're thinking about it too, because I believe that you know, when you're in an office and people talk about like, oh, I had that water cooler idea. We were kind of sitting there. That happens in such a small percentage of the actual time you're in the office. Think about it. Most of the time you're just working and you know, and then you actually are in a conference room and something happens, but it's a small percentage of your total time. So our betting is that if we can concentrate people together, put a problem in front of them, it could be a strategy problem, a cultural problem, a sales problem, whatever the problem is, in kind of condensing all of those happenstance experiences into something also we think will show people build that relationship. So when they're back on Zoom or in Slack, you go, oh yeah, remember that thing we talked about? An idea pops up a week, two weeks later, you still might get some of that like aha moment, even in the virtual. Yep. I love it. Super cool. So the other topic is the adjustments, the cost of living adjustments that a lot of these large organizations and small, but I'm mostly seeing it in large organizations and all over the press that mostly HR teams, finance people, et cetera, are going to lower people's pay if they relocate to a less expensive city. And we shall see. (laughs) Again, back to the worker power, right? So like if the worker has the leverage and they've been you know, say they're getting paid $150,000 and now you're going to tell them you're going to make $120,000. You're like, well, am I producing less? And also it's like, if that person's coming into the office two days a week, but they're in Mountain View and they're commuting from the East Bay versus being in Austin or Tulsa or, you know, Charlotte or something like that, it's going to be a really difficult conversation to tell somebody that their productivity is less than the other person. There's two models that I've seen. This, I think, may be very interesting to you and your audience. Yeah. There's two ways to look at this. One is you have home office or Silicon Valley price and then discount to other regions. That's how I think most people are thinking about it right now. Okay, yeah, that's the benchmark. New York and and Bay Area. The other is actually to have a national rate and then a bump up if you're in an expensive place. That would be national hiring rate. Say it's $100,000 job. But if you are in the San Francisco office, it's 140,000. Or if you're in the New York office, 160,000. So you have a national put the bump up. Those are two models that I've seen. One America Works did something really interesting last year during the pandemic, because we used to be very focused on opening offices, physically the hubs. But obviously, when the pandemic came, so well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But since our mission is more people in more places participating in the modern economy, we looked at it and said, well, what can we do? There are all these tech workers are now being furloughed, remember, right? We forget. Like there was a thousand, tens of thousands of people got furloughed last April. And this is when people started moving around. We looked at it and we had relationships with startup companies and communities in like Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Columbus. And we reached out and said, are you guys still hiring? They're like, yeah, we're well-funded. We're tech companies. We're hiring. So we created these virtual recruiting events yeah, where we actually marketed to the people who were furloughed at the time in Silicon Valley. We had over 35,000 people in our database. We still have them yep. who said they're willing to move for a job. And then we did these virtual events where we got you know 10 to 15 companies in each one of these cities to put their jobs. And then we marketed and then we, in like a Zoom-ish kind of experience, people got interviews and did stuff. And what we learned there was that uh, when people were exposed exposed to, wow, I had no idea there was so much MarTech in Indianapolis. Yep. You know this, right? Oh, I know it. Yeah, very you know, it's well. Like, I didn't know that uh, that the le- you know top leading companies were robotics. It was, it was robotics. Exact Target, right? Exact Target was popped by Salesforce. Yep. But then there's a whole ecosystem there of MarTech companies that have been spinning out of there. Right. But I th- feel like that was, the- that was the... That was the anchor. Yep. Absolutely. That was the anchor. And so what we saw was that People were now working for companies or moving to places and working for those companies doing the exact same job in a bunch of different places. So I think it's going to be really hard to meaningfully discount the pay when people are doing the same job in two different places. Yeah. Yeah. Although it does. So 
And then in, in the scenario that you were saying where you get the bump up for living in a considerable, it's just basically half glass, half full, half empty. It's still the same thing, uh, <laughs> right? There's a mentality it, to it that's a slightly different. It's like you're not getting discounted because you live in a cheaper place. It's actually just acknowledging that it's more expensive to live somewhere else. Okay, so but then you move from Manhattan to Austin, Texas. It's going to be really hard to justify lowering somebody's pay. But <laughs> this is what's happening. And I, I'm interested in your view on this because, yep. you know, I've got 40 companies in my portfolio that I've invested in. Two-thirds of them are outside of Silicon Valley. So we've got some signal there. Facet, we're hiring 10 to 15 people a month. So we got a lot of signal there. And what I'm seeing is actually a reversion to the mean, meaning that... Leveling, yeah. Leveling up. So a full-stack engineer in Baltimore or in Ann Arbor is commanding a big premium over where it was a year ago, like 20, 30% increase, exact same skill set, literally the same human, is getting a bump up. And now it's not quite Silicon Valley dollars, but they're going up. So not going down, going up. Same thing. So... I talk to executives all the time and I say, you know, because a lot of leads come in to me directly through, you know, people like you that I know personally. And so I'll get on the phone with some of these prospects and I'll say, well, where in order to qualify the lead and figure out who on my team to introduce them to, I'll say, well, where do you want this person? And a lot of times I hear anywhere but San Francisco and New York. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Seriously. And I'm like, okay, why? Right? Great question. Always ask that. Well, you know, I feel like the compensation is so much higher uh, in those areas. And, you know, now everyone's caught on that people, there's great people everywhere. High turnover too. Very high turnover there. Oh, yeah. Great point. Exactly. And, And so there's other things that come up taxes. Oh, we don't have any people. I just started this company. We don't have any people in those areas right now. Okay. That's a great reason. But the companies that actually do have people there uh, think they're going to get a discount. And so the conversation I've been having is, well, you might get a slight discount. And the whole other thing. So they're not, nobody's going to get a big discount for hiring people outside of those markets. Yes, maybe small, but you're just going to have to find the best talent wherever they're located and opening it up nationally or based off of a certain handful of states that you want to operate in for tax purposes and whatnot. Headspace has eight that they're working in. And I found it, I was like, how do you pick those eight states? Because they wasn't necessarily all tax-free states by any means. So anyway, that's a whole separate topic. Um, But our compensation guide, have you checked that out in the past? Our annual compensation guide? It looks like no. I'm dying to see it though. Well, yeah. So every year for, I don't know, probably not a decade, but Year over year, probably seven years, we take all the data from the previous year and put it together and say, okay, here's what the compensation is for AEs, SDRs, enterprise. We have lots of benchmarking data. I just haven't seen yours. I'm exactly. dying to see yours. Well, yeah. and so we did this every single year and we would put it out at the beginning of the following year and everyone would get their hands on it and try and negotiate comp or, you know, clients would, you know, people would post on LinkedIn, oh, is Bets a great source for this? Don't you think they're, you know, have an incentive to say comp is going up because it's based on a percentage and, you know, all kinds of interesting conversations would come up. And really, we just want people to get the talent. And so we're putting it out there so they can make offers that people are going to accept and be able to build their team successfully. You know, we're not making a ton of money off of, you know, an extra percentage off of something very small amount each year. So we put it out at the beginning of 2021 based on 2020 data. And because that data was so off during the pandemic, because things completely changed overnight, right? 90% of our clients stopped hiring in March last year. And then, you know, things kind of started, people were hiring more strategic roles, less SDRs, fewer AEs, enterprise people they were still hiring, but there wasn't as much competition for the talent last year. So comp stayed pretty much the same as it had in 2019. Now everyone's hiring 
people are dealing with counteroffers. They're dealing with multiple offers. My team's not used to this. Clients aren't used to it. Everyone's used to putting an offer out, sign on the dotted line, and compensation has gone up, I would say, over 20% in That's the last year. That's what we're saying year. also. Okay. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> like, particularly for technical positions or measurable positions, right? Like, Sale, yeah. You're getting a sales is another one, yeah. right? Because uh, it's, it's, it's a measurable. <laughs> yeah. The 20% lift is about what we're seeing also. But we did um, we did a, a survey at One America Works, um, 1,000 tech workers, and we're asking, did you move and do you plan to move? And the big difference was, obviously, well, there was like 20, no, 40% of people of the tech workers that we surveyed had moved during the pandemic. About half were planning on moving back. And so, but this doesn't mean they moved you know, from California to Texas, just they moved. Could have been to the East Bay, could have been to the North Bay. They moved. Changed houses. Right. What was interesting is a lot of people are waiting to see what happens, whether they're going to have to come back into the office or not, mm-hmm. whether they move further. So I would say mm. put on your radar, there's a huge group of tech workers that we saw in our survey who are planning to move if it's possible, that move further, right? So like if you're going to be hybrid, you can live in Walnut Creek or live in even Sonoma and come to the office twice a week or be on call to be in the office within whatever. But if it's full remote, you may actually move a bit further. And so I think that there's a lot of uncertainty at the workforce level based on what the long-term expectation of them will be. Something to keep an eye on that may impact how people find jobs and what they're willing to take as pay. That's super interesting because, I mean, we've all been able to see the real estate market in the Bay Area where the condo market has been hit. However, single family homes and the suburbs around San Francisco have gone up considerably, you know, millions of dollars, you know, over asking for some of these homes. Or if a home used to be, you know, at 1.5, they're seeing offers well over $2 million. All the way up to Petaluma, like you all the way up to like up to Santa Rosa you see the same thing. My family's up in the Petaluma area. Yeah. And you're seeing the same exact trend where people are just moving further away from San Francisco, driving up prices. So, But literally, I was having this conversation about somebody's parents. And I said, you know, I think they, they live in Pleasanton. I, I was like, I think they should sell the house now. Because <laughs> I don't see Pleasanton keep going up, but I, I'm not a crystal ball person, but I just, I, I feel like that exact thing, right? Well, if I'm moving to Pleasanton, which is lovely, I could move to, you know, a suburb of Sacramento and have a huge mansion with- be in Rockland and be 40 minutes from Tahoe. Like you can start moving yourself further away. And if you need to be in the office for a reason, you drive from Rockland- you know, it's like by Folsom. You yeah, can, yeah, on the other side of Sacramento, yeah. you could be down in the office once or twice a week, but talk about the, the quality of life bump that you can get if you prioritize size of the house, traffic, public schools. Like there's a lot of things that come with being a little further away from the major metros. Totally. And I've seen it directly with my team. My VP of Project and Engineering lived in Santa Clara for decades. And he just moved to the suburb of Sacramento. I'm like, great, go for it. And he can fly out to Austin, Texas whenever he wants and see me in person. And we'll get our executive team together. And now he is living the life. And I'm happy for him, right? There's no concern in my mind when he went to buy that house that he should be in Santa Clara. It is so interesting. No, a place that I want to take us yeah, is go that, for it. Is because you focus with growth companies. Yep. And I have this big investment thesis that there's talented teams everywhere. And a lot of those teams would have otherwise moved to the Bay Area to get access to capital. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened in the last year is every single, not one venture deal, which and it was done in in-person diligence in the last 14 months. Yeah. Zero. They were all done remote from meet the entrepreneur to get the pitch, to do the diligence, to make big investments. I mean, look at the dollars yeah, that were invested. Just crazy amounts right? of capital. And so let's think about how that shifts, where investors are looking, where teams are going to be built. So now if a company that spun up out of CMU, an amazing computer science program there, that team may have gone to Palo Alto right after graduation because they had to, to be next to their, their investors. Yep. Today, investors are more than willing to talk to a talented team in Pittsburgh. And we just saw Duolingo went public yesterday. It's a great example of a team that came out of CMU 
innovative, like just a, a masterful executed company that has scaled in Pittsburgh. Now, what does that mean for recruiting? What does that mean for talent when now the early stage money, seed, series A, series B, is willing to look and then scale companies that are outside of the valley? Now, I think from a talent perspective, this is really game-changing. Nothing's going back, right? So this is why here in Austin, when we see we see Breyer, right, set up his thing here. We see 8BC is here. Yep. We see Sapphire is here. Like we see some big money investors like writing the big Series B checks showing up in Austin and they're going to be deploying their capital in places that they Everywhere. wouldn't have other have done it. So from a recruiting, like thinking about your audience here, if you're an entrepreneur scaling, you don't have to go to the Valley to get your money. So then why build your team there thinking about like where that talent is and then you can create, to me, it's a competitive advantage. You know, now you'll never compete against Google, Facebook and stuff in San Francisco. They're always going to outbid you. Yep. But if you can use flexibility, all these different ways, you know, stay close to your family. Like what's better childcare than your your, your parents? Frankly, <laughs> right? yeah. you know? And so I think that in smart companies are thinking about their entire capital strategy and their human capital strategy will be thinking about place as actually a competitive advantage. Sorry, place, as, but remote. Place, location. Well, so this is where you're hybrid, right? Like you can yes. say, hey, I don't care where you live or I can do satellite offices or frankly, say we have a some type of business where we still want to get together in person. You can do that in places that are much lower cost. And this is, this is, I, I don't, the, the, there's a lot of recipes for baking this bread, right? Like, you, you know, like Automatic, which is the, you know, the, comp- the company that's behind WordPress. I'm not familiar with it. So, so WordPress is a this big company, right? And, and yes. um, Automatic is the company that's behind it. Okay. It has always been fully remote. And it's interesting because the founder lives in Houston. Oh. <laughs> and like 40% of websites in entire internet, like are based on WordPress. And this is a company that has zero offices. Yep. Uh, there's just a lot of strategy for executing both your, now not only your, your human capital plan, but your financial capital plan. Absolutely. Well, and the amount of um, cost savings that comes along with this, not, and we, I know we talked about the salaries really leveling. However, you know, the real estate cost, just a lot of the costs that everyone just baked into the PNL are now reimagined. And a lot of them just go straight to the bottom line. And I think it's very impactful for business. Now, uh, another interesting thing, though, is that the talent shortage that is out there, right? The, the people that aren't really getting creative with how they're going to build their teams and developing amazing training programs and investing in their own teams to build that talent and not just poaching people from everywhere else, I think are also going to have a large challenge because there is a shortage of, of people and, and of workers at a certain level. A hundred percent agree. And and this is where we start talking about diversity. This is such an important moment to actually bring new people into the tech economy, right? Just the reality is if everybody had to live in San Francisco or Silicon Valley, it's hard to do. It's expensive. There's barriers to entry, both like rent as well as networks. And the demographic of the workforce kind of reflects the Bay Area. Yep where if you want, you know, it's a big priority for all of us to actually, you know, reflect in our workforce, the demographics of the country. And if you're going to do that, then you need to actually open offices in places like Atlanta. If you want black engineers, you better be recruiting from Georgia Tech. And the highest quality people coming out of there are not going to want to move to the Bay Area. So if you can either set up an office, if you require that in Atlanta, or enable them to work from home so they could be close to family, culture. Like people like the Southern culture. Like the people don't want, not everybody wants to live in California. I'm from California. I understand why not everybody wants to live there. But if you truly do want to build diversity into your workforce, I think it's really important. This is a change. You need to actually go and meet people where they are. There was this meme for years was like, oh, why doesn't everybody move to the jobs? There's all these jobs. It's like, why don't the jobs move to them? Exactly. <laughs> And this is this is how I think we're kind of breaking down some of those network access, some of that structural access is by both with remote 
And then just the shortage of workers. Now you have to look for new, like what's the new heuristic for what excellence looks like? You know, not everybody went to Stanford or CMU or MIT. Right, or had access to those universities. So now it's like, okay, you know, what does it look like to have gone to a Georgia Tech or an Ann Arbor or a million others? I can't name check every place that has really excellent talent, but if they're not on the on the conveyor belt into Google, Facebook, whatever, they actually don't end up showing up as the early founding team in the next company because they didn't get that first work experience. And then because the investors look at those schools as being the places to go that have the most, you know, the smartest people on the planet where it's just not true. And that, you know, there's people everywhere that have great ideas. And and so the other interest, so when you think about this, uh, I can tell more from a engineering developer creating technology point of view. And where we sit is once the idea is created, how are we going to help these companies make money? How are they going to build the teams that are going to take this to market to build revenue? And when I look at this diversity and sales issue, it is very, it's massive. And then what happens is all, all the companies are like, well, we want women, we want people of color. And so the demand for that talent is huge because people see these bro cultures on the sales floor that have developed over decades and decades and decades. And now people are very committed to try and change it, but there's not talent available. And so what we're doing is saying, okay, great. You know, yes, everyone can fight over these limited people that have this experience, but how are we going to increase to change the future of recruiting, which is our mission, is changing the population of the of the workforce in sales. So we're partnering with the military. We're partnering with universities with their athletic programs because athletes uh, make amazing salespeople and their athletic teams tend to be more diverse than a lot of other organizations within the university. And then partnering with other organizations that are going to train these people and set them up for success when they walk into the interview. And, uh, you know, so I'll have to let you know how it goes, but there's a massive amount of demand for this because I just, I, I think that picking these same people from company to company to company is really not solving any issue. And this is actually where the, again, technology and remote and distributed kind of should level the playing field because it's very quantitative. Did you hit your quota? Yeah. <laughs> Did you make your dials? Did you make your sales presentations? Did you close your sales? Did you advance them through the funnel? And regardless if you are black or white or big or small or old or young or first job out of college or been here forever, the metrics don't lie. Yep. And if we stay metrics driven, this is, I think, something to add to your thinking on this is that it, it does force, when you're working remote, it forced managers to think more about what the job really is. Yep. Versus being, I know it when I see it. Right? Totally. Right? So now it's like, well, we have to define it because we're not going to meet people in person. We have to be able to measure their skills. You can't just say, oh, just because they work there because, well, that's not available. And then what does success look like? Okay. And then like, it's not so much, how did you do drinking beers after work or being on the softball team? It's like, did you hit your numbers? Yep. And there's a real meritocracy opportunity here which forces managers to think what excellence is and what the expectation is, which then opens up the recruiting pool. And then you can really look at what skills are short are, are, have shortcomings in. If you're having higher turnover with certain groups, you can analyze it and say, hey, does our work culture around hours not work for well for women? Does our, you know, our first time in sales because we're getting high turnover of, say, African-American workers say, okay, well, then we can do something there or whatever. Like you can actually analyze it more quantitatively. Yep. And I think then address those issues. And I'm very optimistic on this. I'll go all back to live ops when we had massive work at home. We didn't meet anybody. They did everything very programmatically. Yep. We were highly, way more diverse than any company that I can ever imagine. We didn't actually specifically measure it back then. Yep. But you can just tell by where people were from, accents on the phone, like people were diverse. And also, the way people talked about having the opportunity first time in their lives, that they were actually being measured by 
their output, not their the how they looked. Oh, it was really interesting because you know people have a lot of probably have a lot of lot of issues about how they feel about themselves, the way they dress or their weights or something like that. And I was always warmed my heart because we would get these notes from people. I mean, like, I just feel like I'm being measured on my performance for the first time in my life. It's really powerful. And with FACET, it's really interesting. We have a commitment to, you know, our workforce looking more like our client base. And since our client base is more mass affluent, more mass market, we're going to have more women, more black CFPs. Like, and it turns out if you're willing to recruit nationally and recruit the best people, your workforce is going to look more diverse. And we're seeing that firsthand at Facet where, you know, 10% of our planners are black and in, a, in an industry where 1.2% of the planners who have CFPs are black. And so um, then we're also investing in things like scholarships to help black Americans be able to sit for the CFP board and do, mm. uh, have mentorship and stuff like that because we want to grow that workforce. Yep. Very measurable. And if we were still just sitting in San Francisco, it'd be impossible for us to actually have our workforce reflect our population. Right. And so these are, I, I love where you're thinking about breaking new snow and getting new models of what success looks like. Ultimately, it's it's how much revenue you carry and what the close is on your leads, if it's sales. Right. No, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the other thing that we tapped into is is the mom, the mom workforce as well. And, and that's just a very, very easy one. And especially in recruiting, <laughs> it just, it makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I obviously love it. I've built my entire career on it. But, you know, for somebody that is a caring individual, being able to talk to people about their future and opportunities that are available to them is a very rewarding job. And it pays, you know, very well. And because, you know, it, it does. Talent is in demand. And if you're able to find it, uh, there's a premium on that. So even on like wage gap stuff, right? We're talking like, like the gender wage gap, like working from home, working distributed, and you quantify what the job is, what the output required is, then there isn't a lot of leeway to be like, oh, we're going to pay this person more than this person. Right. What's the output? And totally. so you're going to get a lot more reversion to quality getting paid. And since I believe that, you know, people from a lot of different backgrounds can produce, if you don't believe that, then you got a little different problem. If you believe that people given the chance can produce, then you should see a narrowing of the pay gap if you quantify what the outcome is that you're looking for versus having the qualitative things. I'm interested to hear, because I found this to be very fascinating with going from, because ours was pretty much 100% in person. We had our offices, you came in every day. And if you wanted to work from home, it was a privilege that was given to very few people in the organization, maybe once a month or something, or if you had a real reason stay-at-home mom, et cetera. Okay, well, that person would be allowed a certain exception. We then, you know, went to 100% remote during the pandemic. And now people that are in markets that have offices are able to come in. The production and the leveling out, you know, when you look at a sales organization, and I imagine your planners are also measured like salespeople are. Is that correct? They actually don't sell. Okay. They retain. So they'd be measured more on um, how much revenue they hold, meaning how many clients. Yep. And then what a churn rate and what an NPS would be. Yep, I was thinking NPS. Okay. Yeah. So it's nice because it's actually this really great job where all you do is planning. In the traditional model, you're mostly sales. If right. you're an RIA, yeah, you're, you're trying, trying to, to find more clients. And, and in here, the demographic the actually looks for people actually want to help people achieve their financial goals. And the measure is how many clients you have, how many you lose, and what the NPS is of the clients you are serving. We do have salespeople. It's a different team. It's a different team than the planning team. Yes. Okay, I was like, how do the assets come in the door? And whole separate. We have a specialized sales team that they're very quantitative and very financial, but they are much more sales. They're moving leads from, hey, I'm looking for a financial advisor to this is what's different about Facet. And ultimately, you know, what's the right plan? What's the right service? And then matching them with a planner and then sitting with them in the first meeting to make sure it's a good fit. So the salesperson is a very much an enterprise-y type sales experience yep. with a, you know, $2,400, you know, sale price. So it's a, it's a considered sale. Got it. Okay. And they're selling to individuals. Individuals. Yeah. Okay. So um, back to the topic though of the sales performance, because what we saw was before, you know, you had top, top, top people and then you had bottom people, right. And you kind of, and then mostly people were in the middle. Right. And, you know, 20, what the, 
the point is we have seen a massive Yes, we still have the top people, but we have very, very, very few bottom people. And I don't know what to attribute this to other than um, the people that, you know, if, they're, if they like the job, they'll stay and they can be very efficient working from home. And if they don't, they they leave. I, I, I don't know if, there, if there's anything else to, to make of that, but we have very few people not hitting the quota. None, really. So back at, at LiveOps with high volume sales, we had teams that did, did sales, not just order taking. Yep. Is that when people are shown very clearly what to do, like what excellence looks like, like what's your conversion, what's your AOV, what's your handle time? Yeah. And and they see it in the dashboard, they sit with, and then they are shown what their measure is against like very competitive people, are very competitive. Yep. You get to see the leaderboard, you get to see how other people are doing, and you see how you're doing in a direct, direct, comp, yep. that does tend to elevate performance. When people are a bit, even in the office, you can actually be in a vacuum. Okay. Because you might not see, because you, you're, you're, you may have some crutches. You may not actually just kind of sitting there doing your thing. Mm-hmm. In a work home environment, you're definitely more exposed to everything that's going on around you. Right. Right. And even if you had the hoopla or whatever the dashboard was on the TV or up around the the office, people still, and back to the whole point of being the fun person on the softball team and being cool to have a beer with after work really allowed some types of people to slack off at work and people would retain them because they were likable. And now there's none of that, right? You know, yeah, you can like the person, but it's very clear when it comes to the data that it's just not the right fit. The only measure of status is that leaderboard at this point. Yeah. Wow. Well, I feel like we could talk about all this stuff all day long. And uh, it's so great to see you. And I think it'll be really interesting to look at a year from now, right? what has changed and if some of these predictions that we talked about, you know, play out to be correct. So thank you so much for joining me. And uh, it's always great to see you. Thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed the conversation. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at BetsRecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies. 